A lot of stray papers lying around that just happen to be marked classified. Investigators have found more documents, this time in the private home of former Vice President Mike Pence. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, January 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, authorities have arrested a 67-year-old man who they believe shot and killed seven people at Half Moon Bay, California last night. They say that he is cooperating. If California has some of the tightest gun laws in the country, how did it fail to stop this massacre and an earlier one over the weekend in Monterey Park? After a meltdown last year during the sale of Taylor Swift concert tickets, today Ticketmaster top executives face the Senate Judiciary Committee. Cut out the bots. Cut out the middle people. If you really care about the consumer, give the consumer a break. These stories and Wall Street numbers coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. California communities are reeling from a series of mass shootings in just three days. Rachel Myro of member station KQED reports one of the attacks that claims seven lives in Half Moon Bay in the San Francisco Bay Area is being treated as a case of workplace violence. The suspect, 66-year-old Chun Li Zhao, is a resident of Half Moon Bay. His semi-automatic handgun was legally purchased and owned. Zhao was employed at Mountain Mushroom Farm, one of the locations where he allegedly opened fire. The victims, seven dead and one wounded, are all Asian and Latino adults. Sam Mateo County Sheriff Christina Corpus. All of the evidence we have points to this being the instance of workplace violence. The coroner's office is still working on victim identifications and notifying next of kin, a task complicated by the fact some of the victims are migrants. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Myro. Hours after last night's shootings, police responded to another at a gas station in Oakland that killed one person and injured seven others. A mass shooting Saturday night during Lunar New Year celebrations claimed 11 lives. Forecasters are monitoring a tornado moving just south of the Houston metro area that has the potential to cause catastrophic damage. They say it's part of a strong system moving through Texas this afternoon. Lawyers for former Vice President Mike Pence say they've discovered classified documents at his home in Indiana. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the FBI and the Justice Department have launched a review of the records, as they've also done in similar cases involving former President Donald Trump and President Biden, to find out how and why the material ended up there. According to Pence's legal team, a small number of documents with classified markings were inadvertently boxed and taken to his home at the end of the last administration. It's not clear what the records are related to or their level of classification. Pence is widely seen as a Republican presidential contender in 2024, but has yet to declare his candidacy. NPR's Windsor Johnston reporting. The Justice Department in eight states have filed a lawsuit against Google over its digital advertising business. NPR's Bobby Allen reports the suit seeks to have Google's ad operations spun off from the rest of the company. Federal and state authorities say Google's dominance of online advertising is, quote, neither accidental nor inevitable. Prosecutors say the tech giant built systems that give its products a leg up and enabled the company's advertising empire to become globally dominant. That, the lawsuit says, violates antitrust laws. Authorities are asking a federal judge to order the breakup of Google's ad empire. About 80% of Google's revenue comes from online advertising. And prosecutors say the company has intentionally stifled rivals to maintain its power. Google did not return a request for comment. It is the second antitrust case Justice Department lawyers have brought against the tech giant's ad business. Bobby Allen, NPR News. From Washington, this is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Beacon Hill, state budget riders have taken the first step in the annual budget process. Today, they heard from state officials, economists, and revenue experts about financial forecasts for the upcoming year. The House, Senate, and Governor Healy administration will use the information to try to determine exactly how much money is available to spend. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. State Revenue Commissioner Jeff Snyder told the panel he expects the state will take in between $39.8 and $41 billion in revenues in the upcoming fiscal year that starts in July. On top of that, he says the state could bring in another $1.7 billion due to the just-enacted surtax on income above a million dollars. Still, Snyder cautions economic uncertainty remains. Looking ahead, our vendors' baseline forecasts assume a further economic slowdown and or a mild recession in the first half of calendar 2023, followed by slow growth. Governor Mara Healy will present her budget recommendation to the legislature by March 1st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. More than 8,000 homes and businesses in central and western Mass are still without power. For many of them, it's been more than a day since heavy wet snow knocked out their electricity. There are widespread outages in Harvard. More than a third of the town is without power. Most of the outages are in national grid territory, and the utility expects most of its customers to have their power restored tonight. The co-founder of a Massachusetts-based gun control advocacy organization says mass shootings, such as the ones in California, can be avoided. John Rosenthal of Stop Handgun Violence says Massachusetts should be the model for the rest of the country because it has comprehensive gun laws and a low gun death rate. We treat inherently dangerous firearms like inherently dangerous automobiles. We require renewable licensing, registration of firearms, safety training, safe storage, and just like with vehicles, you can't own a tank. You shouldn't be able to own a military-style assault weapon. Rosenthal says the gun industry should be regulated in some way, other in the same way that is other industries are. And Harvard's Hasty Pudding Theatricals is named Jennifer Coolidge as Woman of the Year. Coolidge is known for her performance in The White Lotus, Legally Blonde, and American Pie, among others. Jennifer Coolidge was raised in Norwell. She's a 1985 graduate of Emerson College. She'll receive her award at a roast and parade on February 4th. 37 degrees in the Boston area this afternoon, a lot more boring than yesterday at this time. Some shots of sunshine. Should have partly cloudy skies tonight, dry and cold in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy. Highs just about freezing. Could have some snow moving in late tomorrow afternoon, mixing with rain, then becoming all rain eventually. A couple of inches accumulation possible by Thursday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Half Moon Bay, California. Add it to the long and growing list of places in the U.S. to suffer a mass shooting. Yesterday in the scenic coastal town, seven people were killed and one wounded in the attack at two farming nurseries. A 66-year-old man is in custody. Marisa Lagos, correspondent with member station KQED, is in Half Moon Bay and joins me. And Marisa, I have seen these shootings described as a workplace dispute? What do we know? 
Yeah, it sounds like the uh, suspect did work at one point at both farms. Um, it seems like the first one he targeted, this mushroom farm on the highway leading into Half Moon Bay, uh, was his current employer. We know eight people were shot in total, seven are dead, uh, one underwent surgery, and uh, he did go to both locations uh, and carry out these shootings. Okay. Um, so we know he worked at both these farms. I mentioned he's 66. What else do we know? They have identified him. That's right. His name is Chin, uh, Chuen Li Zhao. He is 66. Um, he did surrender to police after driving himself to a police substation, a sheriff's substation. Um, after he surrendered peacefully, they did find a semi-automatic handgun in the car. Uh, police say he did legally purchase that weapon. Um, they also said there's no prior indication he'd do something like this, that there had been no threats to the, you know, that they knew about. Um, and it does sound like he's cooperating with investigators today. Huh. So no red flags in his background that we know of. Okay. Um, what do we know about the eight people who were shot? Not a lot so far. Um, between the sheriff's office and talking to the vice mayor here in Half Moon Bay, uh, it does sound like all of them were farm workers, all adults. Um, they were both of Asian and Hispanic descent. Um, and the sheriff said one tough thing here is that a lot of them are migrants. Um, and so finding, locating relatives next of kin is proving a bit challenging. Um, but it does sound like, you know, all these folks knew each other. There was actually housing on site at that mushroom farm. So some of them live there. And it is believe that there were some children, some teenagers and very young children, um, at least at the farm when the shooting took place. Half Moon Bay, I mentioned you are there. Um, it's this beautiful rural coastal community. Have you been able to talk to people? How are they reacting? Yeah, it's pretty devastating. As you said, this is about half an hour south of San Francisco, a lot of farmland, um, you know, well known for sort of surfing and, and uh, boating culture. Uh, people know each other here pretty well. Um, and they've also been devastated by the recent storms that have swept through California. A lot of the farm workers um, were actually, you know, victims of flooding and, and were trying to get help through that. Um, Longtime District Attorney Steve Wagstaff had this to say this morning at the news conference. Cases like this, we've never had one in this county of this many deaths at one scene or one uh, time. So it was a very hectic scene. And you know, as I said, Wagstaff has been DA here for a very long time. He praised sheriff's deputies for their response. Um, but I think it, it really does speak to just how hard this is hitting the community. Of course, just a few days after that horrific shooting in Los Angeles, you know, we are um, expecting the governor to be here this afternoon. Um, and many other public officials are making their way out here to this coastal community. Yeah, I was going to say people there must be so aware, obviously, of what's happening there, but that it follows so closely on the heels of what was happening farther Farther south in the state. Marissa Lagos, thank you. My pleasure, Mary Louise. That's Marissa Lagos of member station KQED updating us on the scene there in Half Moon Bay, California, where again yesterday seven people were killed and one wounded in an attack at two farms. California has endured two mass shootings in three days. First, the 11 killed in Monterey Park over the weekend, and then those seven more yesterday in Half Moon Bay. This despite the fact that California has some of the toughest gun safety laws in the nation. NPR's Martin Costi reports on the practical challenges the state has enforcing those laws. One kind of challenge is legal. For instance, the gun used in Monterey Park. Here's L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna. The weapon that we recovered, I'm describing as a magazine-fed semi-automatic assault pistol. Not an assault rifle, 
but an assault pistol that had an extended large capacity magazine. That extended magazine, a way to fire more rounds without having to stop to reload, that's illegal in California. But in practice, police are not able to enforce the ban on possessing those magazines right now because of an ongoing lawsuit in federal court. Ari Freilich is with the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Large areas of California's gun safety law, which have been largely very effective in in reducing gun violence in the state overall, those have been subject to litigation over and over again. The lawsuit over the magazines is still alive because of the U.S. Supreme Court's Bruin decision last year. That decision reined in gun control laws in New York State, setting a new standard for the whole country. The California Rifle and Pistol Association, which sued over the magazines, wouldn't speak to NPR, but in an online web post, its president celebrated Bruin as the beginning of a, quote, long overdue Second Amendment reckoning in California, unquote, and he promised more legal challenges. Legal fights aside, there's also the basic problem of neighboring states. We have an open border, obviously. Steve Lindley works for the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, but he comes from law enforcement. He ran California's Bureau of Firearms for nine years, a bureau that sometimes sent agents over state lines. We would attend the big Reno gun show in Reno, Nevada, and we would see California residents you know, buy illegal firearms, let's say a, an assault weapon, put it in their car and drive, drive westbound. It's illegal to bring in prohibited firearms, but Lindley says agents wouldn't necessarily pull those people over as soon as they got into California. We wouldn't stop them in Nevada County because they weren't going to be prosecuted or would be prosecuted at a much lower level. We wouldn't stop them in Placer County because of the same thing. We oftentimes would wait for them to get into Sacramento County, and that's when they would be stopped to be prosecuted because we felt that they would actually prosecute the case there which reveals another challenge for California's gun laws. Local support varies a lot. In some more rural jurisdictions, prosecutors are just less likely to come down hard over a gun. There's also been criticism of local police implementation of the state's armed and prohibited persons system. That's a statewide list of more than 20,000 people who at some point bought guns but are no longer allowed to have them. The state can't eliminate the backlog by itself. The Bureau of Firearms is budgeted for only 75 agents, and it's not even fully staffed right now. California's Attorney General Rob Bonta says they rely on cooperation from local police. We've been proud to work with them in joint efforts to do armed prohibited person system sweeps in certain areas, and like for the Bay Area, for example, Los Angeles, and, and we'll keep at it. Bonta also acknowledges the practical realities of trying to enforce stricter gun laws when other states are more permissive. Other states, frankly, need to step up. The federal government needs to step up. People need to have the courage and the conviction to do what we know will save lives. The data and the evidence doesn't lie. The evidence that California Democrats like Bonta point to is the state's gun death rate, which has dropped by half since the 1990s and is lower than the rest of the country. They also point to a study showing the state's mass shooting homicide rate as below average, though it's still higher than a few states with looser gun laws. And even as the U.S. Supreme Court tightens the screws on state gun restrictions, California is pushing ahead with new legislation, including a law that takes effect this summer, which seeks to make it easier for Californians to sue the firearm industry. Martin Costi, NPR News.
American Alpine ski star Michaela Schifrin won a race today in Italy, and afterwards on the victory stand, someone placed a gold crown on her head. Well, that is fitting because this one was special. It was Schifrin's 83rd career World Cup win. It broke a record held by fellow American Lindsey Vaughn and now means Schifrin has won more races than any woman in history. NPR's Tom Goldman reports. Wearing a blue helmet, blue race suit on red skis, Michaela Schifrin exploded out of the start gate for her second run of today's giant slalom race at Kronplatz in Italy. She was the last skier to go because she led after the first run. She said later she was a bit nervous because she hates waiting. But Schifrin also said when it was time to go, everything went quiet until the end. Schifrin won by a fairly large margin in the giant slalom, 45 hundredths of a second. Moments after the win, the young woman who once put a sticker on her helmet bearing the words of her late father, be nice, think first, have fun, was gracious in her comments. The first thing she could think of after placing herself in the record books was to applaud the workers who prepared the race course. And it's the best conditions we had in a race all season. And that's because they were here all night slipping the course off and making it so wonderful us to ski. So thank you for that. This crowning moment for Schifrin is as stark an example as any of the wild swings in sports stardom. A year ago, she was being called a loser in the darker corners of social media. Oh my God! Believable. It's happened again. Amidst huge expectations and still grieving her dad's death in 2020, Schifrin imploded at the 2022 Winter Olympics. She didn't finish in three races and came away with no medals. But she earned respect for her thoughtful, honest, and at times humorous reaction to what happened. Today, Schifrin said, quote, it's exciting, I'm happy, I'm proud. She now needs to win four more races to break the all-time record, woman or man, held by Sweden's Ingemar Stenmark with 86. She's expected to blow by that soon enough, and there's the possibility that Schifrin, only 27 and someone who's been lucky to avoid major injury, could win 100 races before her career's over. Tom Goldman, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. More classified White House documents have been unearthed, this time in the private home of former Vice President Mike Pence. That story is coming up in 15 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, providing guidance and advice to buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at ElizabethBainHomes.com. Lots of ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow finished the day up three-tenths of a percent, 104 points, to close at 33,734. S&P gave up less than a tenth of a percent to finish the day at 4,017. The Nasdaq gave up about a quarter of a percent to close at 11,334. A Somerville Biotech plans to cut 77 jobs. That's 95 percent of the workforce at Finch Therapeutics. 
Finch has decided to give up on its clinical trial for a pill it was developing to fight bacterial infections. The pill will be made from gut bacteria obtained from human feces. Most of the laid-off workers will lose their jobs next month. The rest will stay until May. Finch plans to sell off the remainder of its intellectual property and assets. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to wbur.org. Should have partly cloudy skies tonight, dry and cold in the mid-20s, then for tomorrow overcast through the day. Highs just about 34 degrees. Could have snow move in late tomorrow afternoon, mixing with rain before it eventually becomes all rain. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Pamela Anderson, the Playboy playmate and TV star who became one of the most famous sex symbols of all time, has written a book about herself. And it was her sons who gave her the idea. I think they're just sick of always fighting for their mom. And they don't even really know the gritty details of everything, of course. But they felt like, you know, that I've overcome some things, which is what made me very strong or gave me the sense of humor. And just a warning, Anderson has worked through a lot, including sexual trauma, which we'll be talking about in this segment. As Anderson wrote her memoir, she made it very clear from the beginning. She would have full control. I don't want a ghostwriter. I don't want a collaborator. I just need a great editor. And that's what happened. I wrote every word. I started by asking Anderson about her childhood. She says she was a painfully shy kid who was molested by a female babysitter at a young age. From then on, I just felt kind of like a prisoner of my childhood. I just felt like I couldn't. I was really confused, and I knew it had something to do with my body. I would just was painfully shy, paralyzing. It was such an awful feeling. And so when I did get to L.A., when I did push myself to kind of make these kind of brave choices, it was life or death for me. It really felt like I was doing something to overcome and take my power back. Yeah. And I did it in a, yeah, with a vengeance. <laughs> you certainly did. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned in your book that really moved me is even though you had gone through sexual trauma very early on in life, over time, you were able to get to a place where you could really enjoy sex. You say that sex actually helped you conquer some of your shyness. Quote, I loved role-playing. I could disconnect, <laughs> be someone who wasn't me. Sex could be fun, fulfilling, and imaginative. Tell me, how did embracing your sexuality help you take back control, help you give yourself power? 
Well, I'm a romantic, and I was always a big reader and loved fairy tales. So it was this heightened reality of what romance could be, because it couldn't just be two normal people, you know, sitting on a couch reading together. For me, it had to be my knight in shining armor is coming in on a horse covered in, you know, like so, so Tommy and I just had this very wild kind of romantic time together. You and Tommy Lee. Yeah. yeah. It's how I imagined a real loving relationship should be, because my role models were my parents who were you know, it was alcoholism and abuse. So I just felt like I don't want that. Yeah. Because, you know, the abuse in my life, I think what people don't realize is it's accumulative. It's like, a, it's compounding. So it just became harder and harder. And more and more about my imagination and playing a character because I really wanted to disconnect from myself. Well, you have made very clear that you have learned to use your sex appeal to draw attention to very real, important causes that you care about, like animal welfare. Can you talk about that piece? How, like, instead of letting your public image in any way limit you, you've used it to influence and persuade people to care about the things that you deeply care about. Well, I started to think that anything that got me in the door was a good thing. So a lot of times I would meet with world leaders because they wanted to meet me, you know, have a kiss on the cheek or, or an autograph, and I wanted laws to be changed. And we both got what we wanted. So they were always very impressed that I knew about what I was fighting for. They, mm -hmm. they didn't expect me to come in alone and to have these thoughts. And so I was able to be very successful. You understood that people like to be around you, want to be around you. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny. And there has been strange things. When I would write a letter to somebody to meet them, they would call and say, you know, I was the prime minister of Australia, for instance, would say, can I bring my buddies along? How did that feel when they would ask that? Well, I was getting kind of used to that kind of behavior, but publicly people were starting to kind of catch on how awful that was. And, and I would just, again, I didn't crumble. I mean, you just have to keep going. Disrespect is a weapon of the weak. And I was able to change laws for animals. And that was really important to me to kind of have some meaning along this kind of yeah. silly, superficial career. I felt like I wasn't able to really dig my teeth into anything of substance when it came to my career. So I thought, well, this is how I can create some meaning. Exactly. You talk about actually being underestimated was like a secret weapon. Like one of the poems yes. in your book reads, when you have nothing to live up to, you can't disappoint. People whispered, I might be genius if I could form a full sentence. Utter shock. You know, I love that because I love it when people underestimate me. It means right. I'm just going to show them that they're wrong. Is right. that how you felt sometimes? <laughs> yeah, I did. And I'd always kind of laugh when people go, oh my gosh, you wrote a poem. Or, or she said this. And it was just like, if it was anybody else, maybe it would be kind of sidelined. But because it was me, it was so shocking. <laughs> she can but put was, sentences together in a paragraph. Yes, in a Make paragraph. Make a statement. Yeah. Write a book. <laughs> right. right. So, you know, something I'm curious about when you're writing a book about yourself is what to reveal and not reveal. Like so many times people who go through trauma are told, shine a light on it, name it, open up about it. But, but you point out near the end of your book that some parts are best left unsaid. Tell me about that decision. Well, I mean, my, my book started out of just, as just a poem. It was like a 60-page poem, <laughs> and I had to learn how to shape it and put it into a book. But I also felt like there were some things that just didn't need to be in there because I really wanted to balance it with the whole life story. It's not just the things that happened to me aren't me. You know, I wanted to make sure that my feelings about these situations, it was more about that, not about just like the men in my life or people that had come and gone. But, but I'll tell you, the hardest part of the book for me to write was about 
the abuse as a child to actually name things like the games she used to make me play on her. And I felt like I really don't want to say this. And so I probably should say it because I mm -hmm. think there's so many people out there, you know, Predators know how to pick vulnerable people and they do things to you that are so embarrassing and shameful that you would never tell anybody. And I think that's something that we need to get past. And I think that hopefully will help young people or anybody tell somebody. It's hard to, but I, I, I wanted to say that. And I, you know, I took it out, erased it. I put it back in. I took it out. I put it back in. I thought, I'm going to put it back in. I, it needs to be in there. And I, I think it'll speak to somebody. Did naming it out loud, putting it in there, did it change the way you think about the past now? Well, I've obviously my survival mechanism was my imagination and also learning how to compartmentalize. And, and I'm dealing with that a lot right now with my mom. You know, she read the book and we were been talking and it kind of comes out in jibs and jabs and, you know, this feisty kind of comments. My mom's very sarcastic and funny, but it's like very cutting and cold. And I can tell she's just processing. So I'm just kind of, I'm listening to her. Mm -hmm. But I think in the end, it's helpful. And, and I want to stop this because in my family, this is a lineage. This is generations of the same story. And I don't want that for my kids or anybody in my family. The story being sexual trauma? Yeah, someone has to be brave enough to stop it. We don't have to tiptoe around alcoholics. We don't have to be in abusive relationships. We can leave. And I said to my mom, which was very difficult, is I guess the difference between her and I is that I left and she stayed. That I chose my kids and she chose my dad. You know, like we've been going at it a little bit like this, but I think it's good. Let's get this out. I think that's why at any sign of abuse for me, at any sign of violence, I left. And, you know, people kind of like to make fun that I've been married multiple times, but and I, I make fun of myself too, because those are my regrets. I wish I didn't, but I just wanted to recreate a family for my boys. But I just, you know, was not fishing in the right pond, maybe. You're still searching. I'm still searching. You're still seeking. Pamela Anderson, her new book is called Love, Pamela. It's out on January 31st, and the documentary about her life, Pamela, A Love Story, is out on Netflix the same day. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We got to see at least a little sunshine today. Partly cloudy skies tonight, a cold wind about 27. Tomorrow, clouds thicken, let loose with snow sometime after 5 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Could be about an inch or two uh, on the ground total. Eventually, it changes over to rain with temperatures about 50 degrees by Thursday morning. WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. More and more organizations are requiring diversity, equity, and inclusion training, but is it effective, and how do we measure whether it works? If I try to go into an ecosystem from the top down and say, this is the truth from on high, without their input, it's going to fail. Because that's just not how ecosystems work. I'm Anthony Brooks. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is renewing calls for Congress to ban assault weapons after two deadly mass shootings here in California left 18 people dead in separate incidents. In both cases, the gunmen had legally purchased their assault-style weapons. President Biden says the scourge of gun violence across the country requires stronger action. Here's White House Press Secretary Corrine 
Jean-Pierre. He's urging both chambers of Congress to act quickly and deliver this assault, bans, uh, assault weapons ban to his desk and take additional action to keep American community schools, workplace, and homes safe. House Democrats passed an assault weapons ban last year, but that bill stalled in the Senate and never made it to Biden's desk. But Republicans now control the House by a slim margin and have shown little appetite for restricting guns or challenging the powerful gun lobby. Amazon is offering its paying members a subscription service now for prescription medications. It's the latest move into health care for the company. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports on the online giant's growing health ventures. Amazon launched its online pharmacy in 2020 and last year struck a deal to buy One Medical, a national chain of clinics. Now the company offers to deliver an array of generic prescription drugs, for example, for allergies or diabetes, for a flat fee of $5 a month. Part of its goal is to get more people to sign up for its Prime membership, which is required for the service and costs $139 a year. The prescription delivery cannot be used with insurance or health spending accounts. It's also not available for people who use Medicare or Medicaid and excludes several states, including California and Texas. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. A note here that Amazon supports NPR and pays to distribute some of our content. On Wall Street, stocks finish mixed today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts education officials are preparing to release a new academic accountability plan. The plan under consideration would give some school districts additional time to return to 2019 levels of student achievement. Districts with the biggest declines on state standardized testing would get up to four years to improve. And as WBUR's Kara Young reports, the plan is getting wide support from school leaders. Five district superintendents joined Tuesday's Board of Elementary and Secondary Education meeting to speak in favor of the plan. Their comments come after board members criticized the proposal earlier this month for not being ambitious enough. Blackstone Millville Superintendent Jason DeFalco called the board's pushback concerning. As schools and districts continue along their unique pathways to recovery, it will be critically important that the targets set by the department be assertive but also be attainable. The last thing that schools and districts need to manage right now are goals that are being set for them that cannot be reached in a year's time. Board approval is not required to enact the new plan, which is expected to be finalized soon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Online reservations for summer ferry trips between Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard opened early this morning, but it wasn't easy for everybody to schedule a trip. Technical problems slowed the Steamship Authority booking process, and its website was overwhelmed by the number of users. The authority says it will investigate the cause of the problems. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has hired a Dorchester native to make the city more fun. John Borders IV will serve as Boston's Director of Tourism, Sports and Entertainment. His background includes strategy work with businesses owned by people of color, as well as a community engagement job with the Boston Celtics. Borders will work to attract meetings, events, conventions, and festivals to the city. He replaces Kate Davis. She left the role for a position with the Greater Boston Visitors Bureau. The Boston Athletic Association has announced new pregnancy and postpartum accommodations for its races, including the Boston Marathon. Any athlete who is registered for an event and is pregnant or becomes pregnant before race day can defer to one of the next two races if they choose. The association says the change is meant to improve the runner experience and allow mothers to focus on family without giving up a chance to take part. It's 435.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Lyric Stage with Preludes, Dave Malloy's musical fantasia in the mind of pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff, now through February 5th. Tickets at lyricstage.com. Partly cloudy tonight in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, more clouds and another snowfall in the late afternoon and evening. Not much accumulation, though. Changing over to rain by dawn on Thursday. Rain sticking it out on Thursday. Highs creeping to about 51 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today we learn that yet more classified documents slipped out of the White House and into the private home of a top official. We're not talking about the residence of President Biden or former President Donald Trump. These documents were uncovered at the Indiana home of former Vice President Mike Pence. For the latest, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie. Hey, Greg. Hi, Mary Louise. So another day, another tranche of classified documents turning up somewhere they should not have been. How were these documents found? They were found at Pence's home in Carmel, Indiana, on January 16th. That's eight days ago, and that's according to an aide to Pence, Greg Jacob. Now, he says Pence wasn't aware that he had this classified material at his home, but because of these recent document discoveries uh, involving President Biden and President Trump, this prompted Pence to ask an outside lawyer to review the material stored at his home. And the lawyer found, quote, a small number of documents that could potentially contain sensitive or classified information. Now, uh, Pence's uh, aides said these documents were inadvertently boxed and transported when Pence left the White House two years ago. And upon learning this, Pence put the documents in a locked safe. The FBI collected them from the safe last Thursday. Okay, so the FBI has them now. Um, Will this set off the same kind of investigation we are seeing with documents linked to President Biden and former President Trump? Well, we don't know yet, and we don't know what's in the documents, but this certainly seems possible. Now, Attorney General Merrick Garland has already named two separate special counsel. One counsels, one is looking into the documents found at Biden's former office and, and residence, and the other one is reviewing the material found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida. Now, Pence is a possible Republican presidential contender in 2024. He'd certainly want to get this resolved before launching a campaign with Trump declaring his candidacy and Biden likely to do so, we now have three possible candidates who need to sort out some issues with classified documents. Yeah. Uh, Well, and I have to note, both Democrats and Republicans seem extremely concerned when someone from the other party is found with classified documents. What are we hearing today? 
Right. So uh, Pence himself hasn't commented, but he did speak to CBS on January 11th, and that was five days before the documents were found at his home. He said his staff, quote, reviewed all the materials in our office and our residence to ensure there were no classified materials that left the White House. Now, he said that he was very confident that was the case, although five days later, we, we find out the opposite took place. And the head of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, a Kentucky Republican, said Pence has agreed to fully cooperate. And we should note that the Biden and his staff have cooperated with the government, while former President Trump resisted for months as the government sought to retrieve missing classified documents from him. Starting to feel like a safe bet, Greg, that um, this ain't the last case you and I may have occasion to discuss, that more classified material is out there somewhere. Speak to why it is so hard for the government just to keep a handle on this, track it all down. Yeah, it is actually very hard to do that unless somebody actually knows that it's gone. You know, with classified documents, one agency uh, will create it and then it gets shared with with others of the government, including the White House. But there's no master list of every document, which can vary widely in terms of sensitivity. So documents do go missing, usually by accident, and the intelligence community even has a term for this. They call it spillage. It happens, and they know it happens. And Pierre's Greg Myrie, thank you. My pleasure. Top executives in the ticketing ind industry faced the Senate Judiciary Committee today. Senators accused Ticketmaster and its parent company, Live Nation, of monopolistic behavior and of bungling the sale of Taylor Swift concert tickets last fall. Here's Republican Senator John Kennedy. If you care about the consumer, cap the price. Cut out the bots. Cut out the middle people. Not every kid can afford whatever it is, $500 to go see Taylor Swift. A few senators also took the opportunity to quote Taylor Swift lyrics like Republican Mike Lee speaking here about ticket resales. I think it's a, it's a nightmare dressed like a daydream. I, I don't think we ought to go there. Well, Jim Oswald went there. He's been following the hearing. He's senior music editor at Variety. Thanks for joining us. I will not be quoting any Taylor Swift lyrics. Oh, you say that now. We'll see what happens in the next three and a half minutes. So there was a lot of debate over who bears responsibility for the Taylor Swift ticket debacle. Any clarity on how this went down? Well, the, the issue is the Taylor Swift ticket debacle has nothing to do with antitrust. They simply put too many tickets out in, into the market at once. They were trying to break a record, I assume, which they did. They sold 2 million tickets in a single day, which had never been done before. But they, they broke a record, but they also broke the Internet, mm -hmm. um, which is where all the problems are. Now, the, the accusations, allegations of uh, um, Ticketmaster's monopolistic practices yeah, are let, something completely different. Okay, so let's talk about that piece of it, because 13 years ago, the Justice Department allowed a merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation. What's the crux of the argument against that arrangement now? Well, it, they keep overstepping, uh, violating, I believe it's fair to say, uh, the consent decree that they signed. There are certain things they agreed to do, um, you know, in order to, to keep this from being a monopoly. And they've broken it at least twice, or at least have been convicted of breaking it. I hope my verbs aren't too strong there. But, you know, these are things that they have definitely done. And it's it's very much a 
they are by far the largest ticketing industry in the United States, if not the world. Uh, they said in the hearing it was something like 87% of the entire ticketing industry. Hmm. Um, and it's hard not to make a case. That, it's hard to make a case that that's not a monopoly. Well, if it is a monopoly, does that mean that this merger should unwind? Some senators today are calling for that. Do you think it's likely to happen? Uh, it's possible. They made a strong case for it. The, um, you know, the wording was much stronger than I was expecting, quite honestly. Um, Live Nation spends a lot of money on lobbying on Capitol Hill. And what happens in this hearing and what happens afterward uh, remains to be seen. What's likely is they will probably find ways to sort of soft pedal what happened. They'll pay some fines. They'll, um, you know, walk a few things back and they'll say, we're going to try to be better. Now, to be fair to Live Nation and Ticketmaster, A, they're up against some of the toughest hackers, most skilled hackers in the entire world. And B, the size of the demand for the Taylor Swift tickets was probably unprecedented. I mean, yeah. you're basically trying to get 500 people or 50,000 people into a room that holds 500. Well, so, just in our last 30 seconds or so, do the artists have any power here? Could they bond together and have some influence on how this all plays out? Uh, they could. And Taylor Swift has taken a stand, obviously. But look at the uh, artists that they had testifying for them. I mean, with with no disrespect, who's heard of Lawrence? You know, I mean, it's like that. That really does speak to how reluctant people are to go up against Ticketmaster because they can't afford to. Jem Oswad is a senior music editor at Variety. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Billions of dollars every year get funneled into agriculture research, that is, research that helps advance farming technology. The federal government funds the vast majority of this research, but funding has fallen by a third, a loss of nearly $3 billion over the past couple decades. And that decline has implications for agriculture's ability to adapt to climate change. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin has more. Gwyn Beatty tugs open the frosty door to her lab's industrial-style freezer, which houses thousands of plant and bacteria samples. It starts beeping angrily at her. And you can't have it open too long or else it beeps at you and says, I don't want to warm up. Beatty is a professor of plant pathology at Iowa State University. She recently received a $750,000 grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to study drought resiliency in crops, a subject of increasing importance. There's not a sustainable amount of available fresh water for agriculture everywhere in the way we're going. So we really need plants that can thrive with less water. But federal funding for that research is becoming more scarce. According to the USDA, funding levels for public agriculture research are hovering around $5 billion. That's on par with 1970s era funding. Meanwhile, China has surpassed the U.S. in its agriculture research funding. Brazil, a major competitor in ag exports, has also increased its funding. Beth Ford is the CEO of ag giant Land Lakes. Speaking at a recent public event, she said she's worried the U.S. is falling behind in preparing for agriculture's stark future. We're going to have less arable land, less available water in the future. We know this. And at the same time, population is set to go to 9.5, 10 billion. By 2050, 
we have to produce more food than the last 5,000 years combined. That should be an eye-opener, she says. But while public funding for ag research has fallen over the past two decades, private funding from companies like Land O'Lakes has shot up. Iowa State University, for example, has seen a 50% increase in company-funded research over just the last two years, and agriculture has been at the forefront of that. Gabrielle Rush McNally does agriculture research with American Farmland Trust, a nonprofit that promotes environmentally friendly farming. She says relying on corporations for funding could skew the overall research agenda. They're looking for ways that research can develop products, you know, tangible, intangible, that people will spend money on that will increase their base of profit. Research is a public good, she says, and it should mostly be up to the federal government to fund it. Those public research dollars are determined by Congress via the Farm Bill, which is set for reauthorization this year. Congresswoman Shelley Pingree sits on the Agriculture Appropriations Subcommittee. She says getting more dollars for ag research can be a tough sell with some of her colleagues. It's kind of abstract. It's not like direct funding to a program that puts, you know, milk in kids' lunches or, you know, things that people see as directly providing a service. She hopes this year's Farm Bill reauthorization, though, brings renewed attention to the issue. Farm Bill hearings have already begun. For NPR News, I'm Dana Cronin. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with WBUR this afternoon. Coming up, actress Andrea Riseborough talks about the new movie To Leslie, in which she plays a single mom who wins $190,000 in the lottery and then loses the money. That's coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Boston Bruins are on the ice with their longtime rivals up in Montreal tonight. It's the first time the Bees and the Canadians are meeting this season, 7 o'clock start time. The Celtics head farther south in Florida to meet the Heat tonight in Miami. Three Celtics starters will sit this one out, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, and Al Horford. The game will be on national TV with tip-off at 7.30. Check back on the news with WBR again this evening. Tap to listen on the WBR mobile app while you're out running errands or heading home from work. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. After an intense campaign by some of the biggest names in Hollywood, 
Andrea Riseborough has been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for her role in the indie film To Leslie. Her nomination came as a bit of a surprise. The film has mostly flown under the awards radar. Riseborough plays Leslie, a single mother in West Texas who wins $190,000 in the lottery. How does it feel to win such a life-changing sum of money? Oh, well, I feel a hell of a lot better than yesterday. To Leslie follows what happens after she squanders her winnings, her struggles with alcoholism, her relationships, and her attempts to redeem herself. NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer spoke with Riseborough about the film in October. Andrea, welcome. Oh, hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. This feels like an odd thing to tell you right off the bat, but you play a really excellent drunk And that is not easy to do in a convincing way. But you capture the range of emotions that Leslie can go through when she's drinking, from angry to to flirty to despondent to raging. And I wondered what your mindset was during those scenes that allowed you to make them seem so authentic. I think for Leslie, actually, those moments are the ones of escape. It's the sort of waking hours of sobriety when the vast spectrum of guilt and shame, you know, a bunch of horrible, horrible feelings come in, which is kind of what keeps her trapped in this spiral that she's in. And so when Leslie sort of gets to that place and leaves her body, she's she can be desperately unhappy as well. But for the most part, it's never satiating drinking. She feels before she's about to do it like she's going to soar every time. And the disappointment Everything comes crashing down. She thinks the alcohol will make her sore. That will fix everything. Is that what you mean? No, I I don't even think she thinks that. It's just a hope. When you're faced with the reality of your own life and actually the emptiness and the hopelessness is so vast, the idea that something may quell that even momentarily is magical. And there are so many beautiful, funny spicy parts of Leslie's personality <laughs> <That's true. laughs> that are able to, you know, shine when she's relaxed in that way. And so in a sense, she, she's become her own demon because she's, you know, she's enmeshed with her own alcoholism. Speaking of the beautiful, funny, spicy parts of Leslie, as you put it so well, we heard that clip of Leslie whooping and hollering and celebrating that she won all the money. That's how the movie opens. But soon after, she is literally on a curb, thrown out of a motel she'd been living in. So we see her defiant and aggressive and sometimes funny, other times depressed and defeated. You had to play many different versions of Leslie. Did you think of yourself as playing a single character or multiple characters? A single character, of course. I think often in cinema, the breadth of the human experience is so reduced I think actually humans are extraordinary, all of them. (laughs) And we do very odd things. We're deeply inconsistent. That's perhaps our only consistency. So I very much saw her see her as, you know, one person. But I think in the life of one person, if you yourself think about Sasha like 10 years before now, it can feel like a completely different person. I'm really, really interested in... um, embracing all the different parts of a human being and not reducing that one human being to their addiction, their gender, sexual preferences, whatever it is that is reductive, but rather kind of exploring, I hope, what's a bit more of an accurate depiction of humanity. 
let's hear part of a scene involving Leslie and her son James. This is as he's let her live with him for a while with great reservations, and it doesn't go well. Hey! Hey! What did I say? No drinking! Cannot talk to me Mother. this way, James. Mother! Oh, yes, your mama, stop You're a it. drunk! I am sick. Andrea, some of the reviews of this movie so far have credited it for a really nuanced look at addiction. Did this affect your own understanding of what it's like to be a person with a substance use disorder or a person who's a substance abuser in any way? It's a real leveler, sort of studying human beings. I've said this before in, in relationship to Leslie, but I think there, but for the grace of God, go I sort of mm -hmm. thing. When none of us can choose where we're born in the world geographically or economically or, you know, it's such a roulette wheel. There are those of us who get so horribly forgotten by society. And then there are those of us who have an opportunity like Leslie has Leslie doesn't have the tools to invest money. She doesn't know, she just, there's nobody in, in Leslie's life that may help her make her money work for her, so to speak. It's a huge responsibility. She's also so desperate to be accepted. And you're right, she does have a pretty limited support network to get better, or she's burned that support network. It's been burned, and it also started off with huge generosity because that's how she tries to garner that acceptance is by buying everybody in the bar a drink, you know. And everybody <laughs> in the bar is everyone in her community. Yeah. They've all been generous with her. She's been generous with them. But she's also quite firmly lodged in the position of victim internally. Mark Maron has a cute, charming role in this movie. He plays someone who comes into Leslie's life when she basically has nobody left. And at first he shoes her off shooing away a vagrant, basically. But let's hear part of a scene of what happens next. Did you just offer her a job? I don't know what's wrong with me, man. But look, you better go back out there and tell her no. You go tell her. Damn it, sweetie, where's she gonna sleep? In my room? Where are you gonna sleep? In, in your room? <laughs> Mark is, is, is thinking, what have I done? In real life, Mark Marin has been very open about his own struggles with alcohol and drug use, so there's a personal layer to this. What was it like working with him on this movie? It was wonderful. We felt like a team, which is as, mu as much as you can hope for. It's such a strange thing to play two completely different people who are slowly, like does, bambying toward each other to try and cast <laughs> out intimacy, you know, again, having been kind of bereft and washed up by life. What Mark brings to his character is that little piece of us that even though we know we can't quite do it, wants this time to be able to fix the next partner, you know. Mm. Uh, and he realizes that he can't do that with Leslie, but it's actually really beautiful how far they're able to go together as really more than anything, I think, as friends. Yeah, he accepts her with all her flaws. He does, but he also, you know, tells her the truth and sets quite a few needed boundaries. Yeah. And tells That's her to stop true. being a child because it's not helping her and she knows that. And she has a child and her own child is parenting her and she's, she's so lost in that dynamic. How wonderful that humans are able to come to a place having felt so isolated and lonely where there's a sort of rebirth and excitement about life again, about the most simple things. I think the most important thing, which is what the film is about, you know, a healthy connection with with others. Andrea Riseborough stars in To Leslie. Andrea, thank you. Thank you very much, Sasha.
And thank you for listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fox with the new crime anthology series, Accused. Every week, a new case, a different defendant, and an unpredictable story designed to keep viewers guessing. Accused, series premiere tonight on Fox. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is WBUR. A lot more boring the forecast is than this time yesterday. Should have partly cloudy night tonight, dry, cold, right around the mid-20s. Then tomorrow, mainly cloudy, highs just above freezing. Could have some snow moving in late tomorrow afternoon, then mixing with rain, then becoming all rain eventually. Could have just a couple of inches accumulation by Thursday, then a lot of melting on Thursday, around 51 degrees. It's 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukraine's government has dismissed several deputy ministers and regional administrators in response to allegations of corruption and misuse of power. And so it's not new that there is a culture shift. There is persecution and investigation and arrest through formal channels. What prompted the dismissals coming up? This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, authorities have released the names of all 11 people killed in the Monterey Park, California shooting. The investigation continues into the gunman's motives. There have already been 39 mass shootings this year in the U.S., the only country with more guns than people. The facts that paint a picture of America's relationship with guns coming up. And ever since then, artificial intelligence tool ChatGPT launched educators. Everybody's concerns it could make it easier to cheat, but something it's not all that bad. There's a lot of positives about it that doesn't minimize the fact that cheating and negativity is there, but th- those have been there for a long time. It's 5.01. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Authorities in Southern California are releasing the names of all of the people killed in Saturday's mass shooting in Monterey Park. NPR's Nathan Rott reports all were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Six women and five men were killed in the shooting. They include the co-owner and manager of the dance hall, Ming Ma, or Mr. Ma, as the club's patrons called him. Regulars at NPR Talk To said he was caring and passionate and loved everything about dance. The same was true of 65-year-old Mi Nan. Her family posted on social media that she loved to dance at the studio on weekends, and that Saturday was her last. Regulars say the club has a diverse clientele, many older and retired, It remains shuttered as police continue their investigation. 
Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Monterey Park. In the wake of the spate of recent shootings, the White House is again pushing Congress to pass a ban on assault-style weapons. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the latest call from the Biden administration comes after recent mass shootings in California that have left at least 19 people dead. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre says President Biden has been clear that Congress needs to do more to prevent gun violence. He's going to continue uh, to ask Congress to act, and he's going to continue to see what other executive actions can be taken from here. But at the end of the day, we need legislation that can be signed into law to deal with a matter that is really tearing apart communities. House Democrats passed a ban on assault-style weapons last year, but the legislation stalled in the Senate. Congress later approved a bipartisan bill that contains some measures to strengthen gun laws. It was the first major gun safety bill to pass both the House and Senate in nearly 30 years. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. UN Security Council members are expressing alarm over gang violence in Haiti, but diplomats have yet to agree on sending an international force to help Haitian police. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The UN Special Representative for Haiti offers a bleak picture of the situation on the ground. Helene Lalim tells the Security Council that close to 5 million Haitians are facing acute hunger and gang violence has reached levels not seen in decades. She's backing the idea of a specialized international force to help Haiti's police. Haitians overwhelmingly want this assistance so they can go about their daily lives in peace. The U.S. ambassador at the meeting says time is of the essence and the international community has to step up. The U.S. and Canada sent armored vehicles to Haiti's police last year, but neither offered to lead an international force. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A mixed close on Wall Street. The Dow was up 104 points. The Nasdaq closed down 30 points today. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston's wastewater surveillance program shows COVID-19 infections have decreased by 52 percent over the past two weeks. Dr. Basola Ojukutu is Boston's commissioner of public health. She says the level of infection in the city is trending in the right direction, but she's still concerned. It's still higher than we would like it to be. So there's still increased risk of transmission of of COVID-19. And certainly the risk of severe illness and hospitalization continues to exist for many individuals, particularly those with underlying illness and those who are immunocompromised. Ojukutu says the city health officials are still recommending you mask while indoors or on public transportation. The company Lego is building a new future in Massachusetts. It announced today it's moving its America's headquarters from Enfield, Connecticut to Boston. It already has an office in Back Bay and plans to look for a new location downtown for the new headquarters. The transition is expected to be complete by the end of 2026. Lego says Boston is one of the best cities in the world to attract and retain employees. It says all Connecticut employees will be offered jobs at the new headquarters. Amtrak trains between Boston and Brunswick, Maine are canceled because of downed trees on the tracks. Several hundred trees came down during yesterday's heavy, wet snowfall along the Downeaster route. An Amtrak spokesperson says 10 trips have been canceled so far today. About 300 trees have been removed. Amtrak says there's no estimate for when the tracks will be completely cleared. And a panel looking at expanding passenger rail service from Boston to Western Mass is considering how the proposed service would be managed. Adam Frenier reports there was a public hearing on the matter today in Greenfield. The main task of the Western Massachusetts Passenger Rail Commission is to come up with a governance structure for any new train service. State Representative Natalie Blay of Sunderland says it is important there is Western Mass-based control. There's a feeling, certainly from what I've heard from constituents, 
that there's a fear that this entity would be swallowed up by some organization in the Boston area. Lay went on to say under that scenario, the agency running the trains might not be as dedicated to Western Mass. Some of those making public comment expressed concerns about having enough ground transportation at rail stations, making sure the project is environmentally friendly, and supported a train stop in Palmer. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. Should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, a frigid wind down around 27 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds should thicken and let loose with snow sometime around this time or a little bit after tomorrow afternoon. Could be an inch or less on the ground total. Eventually, snowfall should change over to rain. Temperatures should creep all the way to nearly 50 by Thursday morning. And then Thursday should make it to about 51 during the day with clouds and more rain. 37 degrees now in Boston at 507. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We now know the identities of all 11 people killed in the mass shooting at a dance hall in Monterey Park, California. The youngest was 57 years old, the oldest 76. Their love of dancing brought them together at the Star Ballroom on Saturday night. And now, the largely Chinese-American community that lost them is starting to memorialize the victims, even as people grasp for answers about why they were killed. We're joined by NPR's Adrian Florido in Monterey Park. Hi there. Hi, Ari. Well, the L.A. County Coroner's Office released the full list of the dead today. Tell us about them. Well, here are their names. Uh, May Nan... Lillian Lee, Xiu Zhen Yu, Moi Ung, Hong Jian, Yu Kao, Chu Yao, Valentino Alvero, Wen Yu, Ming Ma, and Diana Tom. They were six women, five men who were, as you mentioned, all either in retirement age or getting close to it, and who'd found a way to stay active and socialize by doing something they loved dancing cha cha, tango, waltzes, salsa. Uh, and that's what they were doing Saturday night to, to usher in the Lunar New Year. Can you give us a couple of details about some of the victims? Well, there was Ming Ma. He was 72 years old, and he was the owner-manager of the Star Ballroom. Uh, people who knew him said that he'd worked hard to make his ballroom a festive and welcoming place for its mostly senior-aged clientele. Uh, Xiu Jun Yu had immigrated to the U.S. from China about a decade ago, and according to a GoFundMe posted by her family, she and her husband had been working a lot of odd jobs to put their two children through college, uh, and the dance hall was her respite. Uh, Mei Mei Nan's family described her as kind beyond words, and on Saturday uh, she had been dancing for the first time since her mother's death. Hmm. Am I correct that most but not all of the victims were Chinese or Taiwanese? That's right. Most were, but not all of them. Uh, I met a woman named Siu Fong. Uh, she hosts a free karaoke class for seniors at the Star Ballroom. And she said one of the victims, Valen- uh, Valentino Alvero, was in one of her classes, and he was Filipino. Uh, and she saw his picture online last night. I said, oh, no, that's him. I mean, my heart just sank. <laughs> you know, it's just unbelievable. It's just like, why? She told me about a time in the class when, because Alvero was Filipino, she handed him not a Chinese songbook to choose from, but an English one. But he said, no, I want to sing this song, Xiao Fang. I said, what? <laughs> and he sang it, I mean, perfectly. The tune and the, and the voice, he has a very strong voice. And his pronunciation of 
Mandarin is just perfect. It's just a surprise to the whole class. In the last couple of days, Ari, families and uh, the community have been raising money for funerals. Um, there are also several large vigils planned for this evening and into this week. And as we learn more about the victims, police continue to investigate a possible motive. Where does that stand? Well, officials have said very little still about the 72-year-old gunman who, who later killed himself. Uh, they have said that he was a dancer himself and had a relationship with the Star Ballroom. Uh, L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna has acknowledged reporting, suggesting that the gunman may have been settling a personal dispute, but he only said that investigators are looking into that, among uh, other possible motives. So the investigation uh, continues. That is NPR's Adrian Florida reporting in Monterey Park, California. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Well, as we have been reporting, Monterey Park is not the only mass shooting America has suffered this month or even this week. Just since the weekend, Monterey Park, Oakland, Half Moon Bay, all mass shootings that took the lives of at least 19 people collectively. And that is just in California. If the number of lives lost to guns in this country feels overwhelming and extreme, well, the data back that up. We're going to take a moment now to lay out some numbers that help paint the picture of gun violence in America. It's the only country in the world with more civilian-owned guns than people, with about 120 guns for every 100 Americans. There is still a week left in January, and there have already been 39 mass shootings from coast to coast. So far, more than 2,800 people have died by gun violence this year, the majority by suicide. Nothing cuts childhood short more than guns in America. It is the leading cause of death for kids here. Recent years have been particularly awful. More than 3,500 children were killed by guns in 2021. No group of people in America is spared, but black people bear the heaviest burden of gun deaths. Black men and boys aged 15 to 34 are 21 times more likely than their white counterparts to die because of gun violence, based on one recent analysis. And the percentage of people who used guns to defend themselves from violent crimes? Less than 1%. Yet more Americans are buying more firearms year after year after year. Ever since the chatbot ChatGPT launched back in November, educators have raised concerns it could facilitate cheating. Some school districts have banned access to the tool. And not without reason, the artificial intelligence tool from the company OpenAI can compose poetry. It can write computer code. It can maybe even get an MBA. One business school professor recently fed the chatbot the final exam questions for a core MBA course and found that despite some surprising math errors, he would have given the chatbot a B or a B minus in the class. And yet, despite, again, the clear potential for cheating, not all educators are shying away from ChatGPT. Ethan Mollick of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania has made it a requirement to use Use the chatbot in his classes, and he's here to explain why. Hi there. Hi. All right, so this is spelled out right in your new syllabus. Students are not only allowed to use AI, including ChatGPT, they are required to. I know we're probably early in the new term, but how's that going so far? Going great. I mean, the truth is I probably couldn't have stopped them even if I didn't require it. Uh, give me an example of when you say it's going great. For example, uh, we had a class yesterday where people had to generate ideas for their class project. 
almost everyone had chat up and running and they were bouncing ideas off of it, asking to generate a list of 50 good project ideas and interrogating it on those things. And the ideas so far are great, partially as a result of that set of interactions. Hmm. It's interesting because as I prepared to talk to you, I was thinking you would make the case, look, it's here. We can't get rid of it. It's not going away. So we have to just resign ourselves to ways to learning to live with this. You don't sound resigned. You sound downright enthusiastic about the possibilities. I alternate between enthusiasm and anxiety. I mean, I think that <laughs> yeah. this was a sudden change, right? We don't, there is a lot of good stuff that we are going to have to do differently. But I think we could solve the problems of how do we teach people to write in a world with ChatGPT. We've taught people how to do math in a world with calculators. I think we could survive that. And I think as educators, part of our goal is what changed about the world that we have to teach. So I think this is a tool that's useful. I think there's a lot of positives about it that doesn't minimize the fact that cheating and negativity is there, but those have been there for a long time. Mm. One positive that I had not thought about, but you note, is that um, it might help level the playing field level in the classroom for students whose first language is not English. Explain. Yeah, so writing is a skill, but not everyone is a great writer. It might be a talent issue. It might be that English is not their first language. Some people take a lot longer to write than others. And there was never really a tool to help you with that other than just plain cheating. Now, everybody can write well with ChatGPT. And in fact, I never require in my class that I expect every piece of writing to be good pieces of writing because there's no reason you can't do it that way. So uh, ChatGPT really does level the ability of people to be good writers. And I've had my students tell me after class that they're now using this to write emails and letters and being taken more seriously as a result. I'm not an educator, but I am a parent and I have been a student and the parent and student in me are screaming in protest saying, does it count as good writing if you didn't write it? Where do you come down on that? So I think we have to separate out different kinds of good writing. I mean, at its current phase, AI will never be as good as the best experts in a field, right? And we still need to teach people to be experts. They still need to do a lot of writing to learn to be a good writer. But we also do a lot of writing in our day that is not that important, but could be very stressful and time-consuming for people who aren't good writers, whether that's an email to a professor or making sure that an essay is well-formatted. I mean, these are things that are hard to do, very time-consuming, have very limited value other than what you're trying to accomplish. And I, I think we could separate those kind of writing from learning how to write well. Have you had a problem yet with a student cheating using the software? And would you know if you did? So that's an interesting question. There is a lot of people claiming that they can detect cheating, and it just isn't clear that that's the case. And so I think everybody is cheating. There was a, a survey done of students at Stanford, and you know a large number of them had reported that they had cheated in the last month since getting this material in place. I mean, it's happening. So what I'm asking students to do is just be honest with me. Tell me what they used ChatGPT for. Tell me what, what um, they used as prompts to get it to do what they want. And that's all I'm asking for them. We're in a world where this is happening, but now it's just gonna be at an even grander scale. Is that a depressing statement from somebody who has devoted their life uh, to, to higher ed, who's a professor at Wharton? Yes, but there's an estimate from the UK that right now, as of today, 20,000 people in Kenya are employed full-time just writing essays for people. I mean, there is a lot of evidence that cheating has been pretty ubiquitous for a while. I think it's bad. I think there's a reason we assign homework and assign essays. But I don't think that that is novel. 
And it is depressing, right? But it's also, you know, means that there's more people we have to reach. We have to teach them why it's important to do these things. We have to change assignments around to make this work better. We have to think of better ways to keep people honest. All of those things are true. But I don't think human nature changes as a result of ChatGPT. I think capability did. Ethan Mollick, Associate Professor of Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Mollick, thank you. Thank you very much. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Tomorrow night at 7.30, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will deliver her first State of the City address. She's expected to talk about how we get around, how we can afford where we live, and what it takes to keep us safe. You can hear it live tomorrow at 7.30 on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Business News is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. Ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow finished the day up three-tenths of a percent, 104 points, to close at 33,734. S&P gave up less than a tenth of a percent to finish the day at 4,017. The Nasdaq gave up about a quarter of a percent to close at 11,334. One of Massachusetts' largest employers is reorganizing. Raytheon Technologies employs 12,000 base staters. A company spokesman said that Raytheon does not expect to make significant layoffs in the reorganization. It plans to consolidate into four separate units or consolidate its four separate units into three. The defense contractor moved its headquarters from Waltham to Virginia last year to be closer to one of its biggest customers, the federal government. It's 520. Support for WBUR's business report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Should have a dry and cold night ahead. Temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy skies, just above freezing. Could have snow move in late tomorrow afternoon, then mixing with rain, then becoming all rain eventually. Highs on Thursday, about 50. It is right now 37 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. An update now on an investigation into failed efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. A judge there heard arguments today about whether to release findings from a recently concluded grand jury. That grand jury looked into efforts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the election result, which was that Joe Biden won. Sam Greenglass of WABE in Atlanta was in the courtroom for the hearing. Hey, Sam. Hey, Mary Louise. So today's hearing, this was an opportunity, I guess, for various parties to argue good idea to release the grand jury report or terrible idea. The district attorney was in the latter camp arguing against releasing it. Why? Well, this special grand jury operated mostly in secret for the last eight months. Uh, Fulton County District Attorney Vonnie Willis very rarely even talked about the investigation in public. So it was kind of a moment when Willis walked into the courtroom today. But also not a huge surprise when she went on to tell the judge that the report should be kept secret, at least for right now. We want to make sure that everyone is treated fairly. And we think for future defendants to be treated fairly, it's not appropriate at this time to have this report released. What Willis is saying is that the time to figure out what to do with this report is after she announces whether she's going to pursue any criminal charges. And she said today that decision, it's imminent. The special grand jury cannot issue indictments on their own, but they did hear from 75 witnesses and they had the option to make some recommendations, which would be in this report. Um, Was anyone arguing for releasing this report? Well, we know that the jurors themselves voted to make it public. And then in court today, lawyers for a bunch of media outlets, they argued it should be released now and they argued it should be released in full. Who we did not hear from in court today were lawyers for any witnesses or potential targets of the investigation, like one-time Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani or any of the false electors in Georgia. But it might have been pretty hard for them to argue specific pieces of this report shouldn't be released, considering that they have not gotten to see it. Okay, so the special grand jury's work is done. I want to flip you back to this question of whether charges are going to be brought or not. What is that process? Well, it really starts with District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Uh, If she does want to go after criminal charges, she will likely go in front of a standing grand jury. They meet twice every week. As far as who could be in the crosshairs, we know this investigation focused on efforts like organizing a slate of fake electors and pressuring election officials, as in that infamous Trump call to Georgia's Secretary of State. Lawyers for Trump himself say he was not asked to appear for the special grand jury, but legal experts have told me that doesn't actually tell us much about whether he'll face charges in the end. So it's still a major question mark. Hmm. What is next? Big picture for the investigation. Fulton County Judge Robert McBurney, he's going to have to make a decision on releasing this report. And he said there's not exactly a lot of precedent to go on, but Willis can move ahead with indictments whether this report is out or not. So indictments could come really fast. But even if that happens, Mary Louise, the rest of the legal process here is likely to go on for months, possibly years. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Mary Louise. Sam Greenglass of WABE in Atlanta. The Justice Department and eight states are trying to break up Google. Today, they filed a lawsuit alleging that Google abuses its vast power over online advertising. They're asking a federal judge to force Google to spin off its ad empire into a separate business. NPR's Bobby Allen joins us for more in today's All Tech Considered. Hi, Bobby. 
Hey, Ari. What is the core of the Justice Department allegation here? The suit says that Google has spent years building a system for online advertising that boxes out competitors. They argue that Google has a monopoly over online ads and is hurting web publishers and uh, U.S. consumers. And all right, here is why the Justice Department thinks so. Google, of course, sells ad space online, but they also own the tools that websites use to display online ads. And they operate the largest auction house where ad transactions take place. So to hammer their point home, DOJ prosecutors cited an internal email from a Google executive who once raised concerns about this arrangement and put it this way. It's as if Goldman Sachs owned the New York Stock Exchange. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland at a press conference today in Washington announcing this suit. For 15 years, Google has pursued a course of anti-competitive conduct that has allowed it to halt the rise of rival technologies, manipulate auction mechanics to insulate itself from competition, and force advertisers and publishers to use its tools. So Garland is arguing that Google is abusing its power in the online advertising world. And what are prosecutors asking the court to do about it? Prosecutors say Google should have to spin off its advertising arm from the rest of the company. Break up big tech. We've heard that before. It's long been a rallying cry, right? Well, now just the Justice Department is saying that to a federal judge. But Google's advertising business and Google search are so intertwined that, you know, breaking up the company would be a very daunting and very drawn out process. And what is Google saying about this? Yeah, Google says prosecutors are trying to rewrite history. To understand what they're saying, let's back up for a moment. One way Google has become so massive in advertising has been by gobbling up other ad companies. And a very key acquisition happened in 2007 when Google bought a company called DoubleClick, which owned very popular online advertising tools. Now, at the time of the deal, you know, it was approved by federal regulators, including the Justice Department. Now, more than 15 years later, federal prosecutors want to undo the deal. So Google says prosecutors, if they got their way and were able to unwind the company, both advertisers and websites would see their costs go up. And is that true? You know, Ari, there's really no consensus on this question. Some experts agree with the Justice Department that, yeah, breaking up Google could bring in more competition. And, you know, maybe the way ads are are sold online would become uh, more competitive. But others say, you know, it's going to fix one problem and then introduce another, right? The online advertising system right now is highly automated. Advertisers engage in these instantaneous auctions to find the right audience. And some say if that system was less centralized, so if Google owned less of it, it could become a big mess. And yes, it's possible that it becomes more expensive for both the buyers and the sellers of ads. So it's important to point out here that this comes at a really tough time for Google, right? We heard last week that Google laid off 12,000 employees because of uncertainty around things like advertising spending, which has been trending down in recent months. So all right, this, this Justice Department lawsuit just really adds to Google's headaches right now. NPR's Bobby Allen, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ari. Support for All Tech Considered comes from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIQ.com. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet?
details at CapitalOne.com. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, The Art of Burning, a comedy exploring the love, rage, and responsibility that go with marriage and parenting in America, now through February 12th, HuntingtonTheater.org. Parenthood often involves lots of mind-numbing routine, until it doesn't. There are joyful moments, something that you treasure forever, and that means that you, when you're in them, you're not thinking about anything else. Those little moments can change everything, like how parents perceive time. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Several top Ukrainian officials have been forced to resign over corruption allegations. The State Department says it does not believe any U.S. funds were involved, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. A deputy defense minister was among those ousted in the shakeup, asked whether that former official might have had a hand in U.S. military aid. State Department spokesperson Ned Price responded this way. As of right now, we're certainly not aware that any uh, U.S. assistance was involved in the allegations that we've heard about from our Ukrainian partners, Uh, but this is an ongoing effort. Price says there are teams in Kyiv and in Washington making sure that U.S. assistance is going to the right places in Ukraine. He says he welcomes the quick and decisive action by Ukraine's president, and he praises civil society activists who are working to hold officials to account. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, a Senate committee is debating possible action to cut down on ticket scalping after a breakdown last year during sale of Taylor Swift concert tickets. Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation back in 2010 to become the world's largest ticket seller, but some lawmakers are suggesting it may be necessary to split up the company again after its botched presale debacle for Swift's concert tickets. Here's Senate Majority Whip Dick Burt Durbin. While Ticketmaster and its parent company, Live Nation Entertainment, have offered explanations for these issues. These issues are symptomatic, I think, of a larger problem. The ticketing and live entertainment markets lack competition, and they are dominated by a single entity, Live Nation. Meanwhile, the Justice Department has also opened an investigation into Ticketmaster's business practices. Stocks finished mixed today on Wall Street as more companies deliver their fourth quarter earnings reports. The Dow was up three-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Beacon Hill, state budget writers are launching the process of writing up the annual budget. Today, they heard from state officials, economists, and revenue experts about the financial forecast for the coming year. The governor's office and the legislature will use the information to determine how much money is available to spend. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. State Revenue Commissioner Jeff Snyder told the panel he expects the state will take in between $39.8 and $41 billion in revenues in the upcoming fiscal year that starts in July. On top of that, he says the state could bring in another $1.7 billion due to the just-enacted surtax on income above a million dollars. Still, Snyder cautions economic uncertainty remains. Looking ahead, our vendors' baseline forecasts assume a further economic slowdown 
and or a mild recession in the first half of calendar 2023, followed by slow growth. Governor Mara Healy will present her budget recommendation to the legislature by March 1st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Somerville may wipe out medical debts for some of its residents. The City Council approved a plan to use Federal American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, funds for the initiative. Somerville City Councilor Willie Burnley Jr. says it won't cost the city much money, but it will help thousands of people with medical debt that makes up more than 5% of their annual income. We have about $20 million of ARPA funding left, so this is about a penny to the dollar that we have. It's about one one-hundredth of the money that we have left. And to me, spending a penny on this is the best penny we would have ever spent as a city. Residents who make less than 400 percent of the federal poverty rate will be eligible. That's about $54,000 for an individual and 111000 for a family of four. The mayor of Somerville needs to approve the proposal. Nearly 7,000 homes and businesses in central and western Mass are still without power thanks to yesterday's heavy, wet snow. Nearly one-third of the town of Harvard is in the dark. National Grid says most of its customers without electricity should have it restored tonight. And Harvard's Hasty Pudding Theatricals is named Jennifer Coolidge as Woman of the Year. Coolidge is a character actress known for her performances in, among other productions, Legally Blonde, American Pie, and The White Lotus, for which she just won a Golden Globe Award. Jennifer Coolidge was raised in Norwell and is a 1985 graduate of Emerson College. She will be honored with a parade in Cambridge February 4th. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. In the forecast, kind of cold overnight tonight in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, more clouds, another snowfall. Right about this time tomorrow afternoon, not too much accumulation, changing over to rain by daybreak on Thursday. Rain sticking out during the day as well. Highs creeping to about 51 degrees, so a lot of melting going on Thursday. In the Boston area now, 37 degrees at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Now to a story unfolding in Atlanta, the roots of which could take you back at least a century. At the heart of this is a planned 85-acre training complex for police, a complex scheduled to be built in a wooded area of metro Atlanta. After the city council voted in favor of the construction, protesters moved into the forest. Well, fast forward to last week when law enforcement raided and removed protesters from campsites at what they call Cop City. A Georgia state trooper was shot and injured. A 26-year-old environmental activist was shot and killed. To provide more context, Madeline Thigpen joins me now. She is a criminal justice reporter for the nonprofit news organization Capital B Atlanta, and she's on the line from Atlanta. Madeline, hi there. Hi, Mary Louise. 
Hey, so I understand there are conflicting accounts as to what exactly happened in these shootings. While we wait for those investigations to play out, I want to talk about the vigils that have happened for the activist who was shot, including one in downtown Atlanta that turned into a violent protest. Um, Describe what you saw. So Saturday evening, the vigil started out at Underground Atlanta. It was you know, quiet, peaceful. People were there, obviously, to express their distrust in the law enforcement narrative of what happened, and also to mourn Tehran. The protesters then began marching down Peachtree Street, which is like a main road in downtown Atlanta. And they began smashing the windows of a Deloitte office building, which is where the Atlanta Police Foundation headquarters are. They also smashed uh, Wells Fargo Bank buildings. Wells Fargo is a major funder of the Atlanta Police Foundation. And they also smashed windows on a cop car and set the cop car on fire. When the police responded, they began like arresting protesters and everybody dispersed. So let's get into the roots of this. Why do protesters oppose this planned police training center? So this land, South River Forest, it's also called Wilani Forest, which is the name that was given to it by the Muscogee Creek people, has been undeveloped since 1995. There used to be a prison farm that had been there since the 1920s, which is where nonviolent offenders were sent to work on the farm Since the farm was closed in 1995, the land has been sitting there undeveloped. Residents have said that, you know, homeless people have gone back there and lived in some of the abandoned buildings, and they have wanted to see the land turned into a park or a public green space. In 2021, former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announced the plans for this training facility that protesters call Cop City. The facility would be 85 acres in this 380-acre tract of land. So not the entire thing, but protesters are saying that this would bring a massive police presence into this majority Black, low-income community. And it would also clear out a lot of the trees on this land. I mean, understanding Atlanta is a big city and there's going to be a whole range of opinion. Where is public opinion in Atlanta on all this? So public opinion has always really been against the construction, which is not to say that everybody is against it, but when city council voted to lease the land to the Atlanta Police Foundation, over a thousand people called in to speak during public comment, and around 70% of them were against the leasing of the land for the construction of this facility, and that was like 17 hours of public comment. Hmm. Meanwhile, construction is still greenlit. What is the timeline? Construction is greenlit, but the police foundation and the mayor's office have had a difficult time pinning down a contractor. Brasfield and Gorey, which is one of the contractors that I know people were talking about potentially building this, had their offices in Alabama vandalized. The mayor has said that they have had issues with other contractors saying they don't want to take on the project because they're afraid of retaliation from activists. Madeline Thigpen, criminal justice reporter with Capital B Atlanta. Thank you. Thank you. Ukraine's government dismissed several deputy ministers and regional administrators today. 
The move is seen as a response to allegations of corruption and misuse of power. Ukraine struggled with graft before the war, and there has been increased scrutiny on transparency in the last year as the West sends Ukraine billions of dollars in military and other aid. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. 70-year-old Anatoly Yukimovich is shopping for groceries in central Kyiv and says he spent his life hearing about corrupt politicians. He's a cynical view of this government shakeup. He rolls his eyes and explains. For 30 years, our leaders would steal, 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 he says. Only the face has changed. For example, he says, he's embarrassed that Ukraine needs to ask for tanks or ammunition during this war. Give me this, give me that, he says. Is this normal? But others say this version of Ukraine, the country where graft is endemic, is moving to the past. We're changing. There's a culture shift. We are meet the challenge heads on. We're fixing it, you know. That's Timothy Milovanov, the president of the Kyiv School of Economics. He praises the government for acting quickly after allegations of impropriety. It's very, very important that accusations have been specific and the responses have been specific. For example, he says, the deputy in the general prosecutor's office was dismissed for vacationing in Spain at a time where men of fighting age are barred from leaving the country. And the deputy minister of defense resigned after Ukrainian journalists revealed that the ministry purchased food for soldiers that in some cases cost up to three times higher than supermarket goods. And that resembles to me much more the Western, you know, like good state democracy, developed democracy, where people resign to preserve the integrity of the minister of defense. The scandal prompted defense minister Oleksiy Reznikov to promise that his ministry would completely revamp its procurement process in the coming months. Vitaly Shabunin of the Anti-Corruption Action Center, which is also investigating the procurement scandal, says Reznikov took too long to react. By contrast, he says, the Minister of Infrastructure fired his deputy immediately after allegations of bribery emerged. This is the right reaction, Shabunin says, and shows to the public that the government is ready to fight corruption. That's important to Western leaders who have donated billions in aid to Ukraine over the last year. The European Union, which Ukraine hopes to join one day, praised President Volodymyr Zelensky's government for taking corruption allegations seriously. In his nightly address to the public, Zelensky promised more shakeups would come this week. Back at the market, Yevgeny Martsinyuk, a young engineer, is waiting for a friend while puffing on a cigarette. It'll be decades before we know what happened behind the scenes here, he says. But I'll support the government no matter what. The Russians have their propaganda, and we have ours. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Turkish families are struggling with soaring prices, and many find themselves forced to give up some of their usual winter pleasures. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports that one sign of this can be found at Istanbul's Turkish baths, where employees say many of their customers are staying away this year. Hamams, or Ottoman-style bathhouses, can be found all over Istanbul, and indeed all over Turkey. 
Some are large and extremely ornate, blending Roman and Byzantine bathhouse styles. In earlier times, they fulfilled the need for basic cleanliness. Today, they remain popular among people looking for moments of calm in a crowded, bustling city and who also enjoy a scrub and a massage in the bargain. A small fountain and soothing music await visitors to the Galatasaray Hammam in Istanbul. A sign by the door announces that bathers have been coming here since 1481. Hammam employee Yeet Chenuk says, like many businesses, they were hit by the coronavirus pandemic. And just when things started to bounce back, a bomb went off on Istanbul's main commercial boulevard, cutting off an important stream of foreign tourists. He says they probably won't return until vacation time this spring. Right now, it's dead season. We are waiting for like the, uh, the vacations and right now it's calm. Normally, this time of year is when hammams rely on their Turkish customers. But Chinook says this winter, that's a problem for families trying to make ends meet as prices for food, rent and other basics remain very high. Local customers are lower after pandemic and because of the prices are becoming higher because of the inflation. Turkey's painfully high inflation rate is something the government is keen to move past, mainly by predicting bitter times just around the corner. Finance Minister Nuruddin Nabadi recently gave an upbeat forecast for 2023. He predicted a long-awaited decline in the recent eye-popping price rises. The annual inflation fell sharply to 64% in December from the 84% reported in November of 2022. The decline is expected to become more pronounced in 2023. The notion that 64% inflation represents a sharp drop gives you some idea of how bad things got in Turkey last year. Many economists blame President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's insistence on keeping interest rates low, despite the downward pressure that puts on the Turkish lira, which plummeted to a 20-year record low in October. The depressed lira forced Turkish families to cut out non-essential spending, even some less expensive pleasures such as boza, a popular non-alcoholic drink. It's the color of eggnog, but it's made from fermented millet. The most popular place to find it in Istanbul is called Vefa, where in the past you could see lines going out the door and down the block. But 51-year-old Ibrahim, working the cash register, says that's not the scene these days. It's not crowded at the moment. Actually, for us, this is empty. When it was busy, there were hundreds of people standing on the street. We couldn't keep up with the demand sometimes. As for whether prices will come back to earth anytime soon, some analysts point to elections likely in May, suggesting that it may be in President Erdogan's interest to see living standards among voters improve between now and then. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the film that's racked up the most Oscar nominations. That's ahead in about five minutes. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org.
And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com Five Celtics players will miss the game against the Miami Heat tonight, including three starters, Jalen Brown, Al Horford, and Marcus Smart. Rob Williams, though, will be back in the fold. He missed last night's game with a knee injury, 7.30 tip-off time in Florida. Bruins still have the best record in the NHL and are riding a five-game win streak as they visit the Montreal Canadiens tonight. Game time is 7 o'clock. And the Patriots' new offensive coordinator is a familiar face in Foxborough. Multiple reports say Bill O'Brien is returning. He was the Pats' offensive coordinator and quarterback coach between 2007 and 2011. O'Brien's been the offensive coordinator with the University of Alabama for the past two years. This is 90.9 WBUR, still 37 degrees at 550. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The unexpected star of the Australian Open is a 20-year-old tennis player who had never been outside of the U.S. before this tournament. Ben Shelton has played his way into the quarterfinals. And Ben Rothenberg, senior editor of Racket Magazine, is one of many who've been riveted by his performance. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Ben Shelton has a tennis pedigree. Tell us about who he is. Yeah, Ben Shelton is someone who has been on the radar of American tennis close watchers for a couple years now. He is the two-time NCAA singles champion on the men's side, playing for the University of Florida. And his father, uh, Brian Shelton, was a tour-level player in the ATP tour in the 1990s primarily. And so he's come up. Uh, pretty quickly through the professional ranks after having a very successful amateur career at the college level. Uh, Shelton has really made some very big strides very quickly, especially on his first trip abroad here. He's made it all the way to the quarterfinals of this first Grand Slam of the year. It's really been pretty remarkable and getting a lot of questions from people. Like, who is this guy? Relatively understandably, yeah. So describe the way he plays. He's left-handed. Yeah, he's left-handed, which is relatively rare in tennis, as in most other walks of life. And he is a big, strong guy. He's six foot four. He's got a big serve. He's got a lot of power. He really controls play out there. And he's a very imposing figure on the court and wins a lot of free points with this serve. The lefty serve comes at a different angle than the righty serve that most players are most accustomed to. Uh, so that's a big advantage for him, too. And also right now, I think he's really benefiting at this tournament from an element of surprise. There is not a great scouting report on Ben Shelton at this point on tour because most players haven't seen him play. Certainly haven't played against him at this point. So he's really catching a lot of players off guard, which will be decreasingly the case, obviously, as his, as his career goes forward. Can you tell whether this is a fluke? Do you think we're going to be talking about him five years from now? I do think we'll be talking about him five years from now. I do think that this is ahead of schedule in a meaningful way. And I do think that Ben got a fairly favorable draw with how he landed in the section of the Australian Open bracket and some of the other results that happened in that section. Uh, so I think it's ahead of schedule for him to be doing this deeper run without having to beat some of the game's biggest names so far. But at the same time, I think the upside for him and the ceiling for him was always considered very high. And actually I did a prediction thing for this season where I was ranking who would finish tops of among the American men sort of in order. And I had Shelton up at number three for this season. Like I, I did really expect him to make a pretty, a pretty seismic, uh, 
you know, leap up the rankings, but not necessarily by the end of January. <laughs> You're you are claiming credit for having called this, even if everybody else is taken by surprise. Somewhat, yes. <laughs> People have declared the death of American men's tennis many times over. Do you think this is going to put that talk to rest? I think to really declare that moratorium over, it's going to take another Grand Slam champion. That's the main job people care about. It's coming up on 20 years now since Andy Roddick won the 2003 U.S. Open, which stands as the last uh, men's singles title at a Grand Slam for an American man. Uh, And so I think that's really the threshold that American sports fans more casually will care about in terms of declaring uh, American men's tennis as fully resurrected into its previous heights. Uh, but this is certainly a great start, and Shelton is absolutely a great candidate for someone who can end that drought. Is this tournament ultimately still Novak Djokovic's to lose? It does seem that way, yes, for sure. Now, Djokovic has won the Australian Open nine times, and he's been in pretty pretty imposing form so far, especially in his last round playing against an Australian player who was a bit critical of him uh, during last year's whole vaccination deportation saga. Uh, this seemed to really be a, a clear stop on Djokovic's revenge tour. He won 6-2, 6-1, 6-2 in his most dominant performance in a long time. And so Djokovic seems to be the guy to be. He has had a lingering hamstring injury, which people are keeping an eye on, but it clearly didn't seem to be holding him back much in that last last match. Ben Rothenberg hosts the tennis podcast, No Challenges Remaining. Thanks a lot. For sure. Nominations for this year's Academy Awards were announced this morning. The film Everything Everywhere All at Once racked up nods in almost every category, including Best Picture. In that category, the film will compete with Top Gun Maverick, The Banshees of Inishirin, and The Fablemans, among others. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco has more. What's happening? Michelle Yeoh, who was born in Malaysia, made history as the first Asian actress nominated for a leading role Oscar. She plays a woman traversing the multiverse in the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I am paying attention. The quirky independent film earned 11 Oscars nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director for the duo Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. It also got nods for supporting actresses Stephanie Chu and Jamie Lee Curtis, and actor Ki Hui Kwan, who audiences first saw as a child in the 1984 movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yo started out in 1990s martial arts movies from Hong Kong, then became familiar to American audiences with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 23 years ago. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. Another longtime actress, Angela Bassett, also made history as the first actor from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to be nominated for an Oscar. She stars in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, which did not get nominated as Best Picture. But it did pick up five nods, including for its original song performed by Rihanna. Rihanna's nomination means she'll likely perform on stage at the ceremony soon after she headlines the Super Bowl halftime show. The Oscars telecast may get more boosts by seeing nominated artists Lady Gaga and David Byrne. The German film All Quiet on the Western Front about soldiers in World War I got six nominations, including Best International Feature and Best Picture, where it will compete with the blockbuster Avatar The Way of Water, directed by James Cameron. I see you. They'll go up against The Fablemans, the film Steven Spielberg based on his childhood. Movies are dreams. 
For two years, women have won the Best Director Oscar, Jane Campion and Chloe Zhao, but this time, no women were nominated in that category, says Variety's senior awards editor, Clayton Davis. No Sarah Polly for Women Talking, even though her film was nominated for Best Picture. No Gina Prince-Bythewood for her epic The Woman King. That movie was completely shut out across the board, including Viola Davis. Shinoya Chuku, the director of Till, also shut out. Nothing for Danielle Deadweiler, who was expected to get in Best Actress for her performance in that film. Davis says one of the biggest game changers was the Best Actress nomination for Andrea Riseborough after her grassroots campaign for her performance in the independent film To Leslie. This was a very, very tiny movie, very small distributor played possibly in one theater, but all the biggest stars were coming out to tout her performance. We're talking to Amy Adams, Kate Winslet. I mean, when Kate Blanchett won the Best Actress Award at the Critics' Choice Awards for her performance in Tar, the first name that came out of her mouth was praising Andrea Riseborough and Two Leslie. Whether she can beat out Kate Blanchett, Anna de Armas, Michelle Williams, or Michelle Yeoh, well, all will be revealed at the Academy Awards on March 12th. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fox with the new crime anthology series Accused. Every week a new case, a different defendant, and an unpredictable story designed to keep viewers guessing. Accused, series premiere tonight on Fox. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. California has some of the tightest gun laws in the country, but they failed to stop two mass shootings in the past three days. California's gun safety law, which have been largely very effective in, in reducing gun violence in the state overall. Those have been subject to litigation over and over again. We'll hear why the lawsuits just keep coming. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, California authorities have arrested a 67-year-old man they believe is the shooter in the Half Moon Bay attack. They say he is cooperating with them. Today, American skier Michaela Schifrin won a record 83rd race on the Women's World Cup circuit. She passed a fellow American as the woman alpine skier with the most ever wins. And tonight on Marketplace, copper prices are expected to surge this year. That could put a squeeze on efforts to transition energy sources from carbon. It's 6.01 News Headline and the forecast are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. San Mateo County Sheriff's officials this morning confirmed the mass shooting at two farms in Half Moon Bay yesterday is being treated as a case of workplace violence. KQED's Rachel Myro is more. The suspect, 66-year-old Chun Li Zhao, is a resident of Half Moon Bay. His semi-automatic handgun was legally purchased and owned. Zhao was employed at Mountain Mushroom Farm, one of the locations where he allegedly opened fire. The victims, seven dead and one wounded, are all Asian and Latino adults. San Mateo County Sheriff Christina Corpus. All of the evidence we have points to this being the instance of workplace violence. The coroner's office is still working on victim identifications and notifying next of kin, a task complicated by the fact some of the victims are migrants. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Myro. President Biden hosted Democratic leaders at the White House today amid a new era of divided government, with Republicans now in control of the House. Among the items discussed, the standoff over raising the debt ceiling, the ongoing Russian war in Ukraine, and the recent spate of mass shootings in California. Speaking in the Roosevelt Room, Biden expressed sympathy for state residents on a number of fronts. Their hearts are with the people of California. They've been a rough, rough couple of days. They just got back from spending time with Gavin Newsom and the floods and the devastation that occurred. And then on top of that, we see what's happened in California and uh, what's happened to the Asian American community. It's been devastating. Biden also again called on Congress to send him an assault weapons bill and at least one shooting, a semi-automatic assault style weapon was used. Ukraine's government is in the middle of a shakeup today after forcing out several key officials. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. President Volodymyr Zelensky approved the departure of one of his top aides, Kirillo Tymoshenko, who resigned for undisclosed reasons. A deputy defense minister also resigned following news reports that the ministry purchased food for the military at two to three times higher than grocery store prices. And Deputy Prosecutor General Oleksiy Simonenko was dismissed after taking an unauthorized vacation to Spain. The departures follow the firing of a deputy infrastructure minister on Monday after he was investigated for bribery. Zelensky says his government will not tolerate corruption and hinted there may be more personnel changes to come. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. The U.S. says it is moving closer to approving the delivery of M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine amid some international reluctance by countries to send needed tanks as it Ukraine continues to battle the Russian incursion that began nearly a year ago. The official announcement likely to come tomorrow in coordination with an announcement from Germany it will approve a request for Poland to transfer German-made Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine as well. Stocks closed mixed on Wall Street. The Dow is up 104 points today. You're listening to NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts education officials are preparing to release a new academic accountability plan. The plan under consideration would give some school districts additional time to return to 2019 levels of student achievement. Districts with the biggest declines on state standardized testing would get up to four years to meet the achievement goals. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the plan is getting broad support from school leaders. Five district superintendents joined Tuesday's Board of Elementary and Secondary Education meeting to speak in favor of the plan. Their comments come after board members criticized the proposal earlier this month for not being ambitious enough. Blackstone Millville Superintendent Jason DeFalco called the board's pushback concerning. As schools and districts continue along their unique pathways to recovery, it will be critically important that the targets set by the department be assertive but also be attainable. The last thing that schools and districts need to manage right now are goals that are being set for them that cannot be reached in a year's time. Board approval is not required to enact the new plan, which is expected to be finalized soon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The co-founder of a Massachusetts-based gun control advocacy organization says mass shootings, such as those in California recently, can be avoided. John Rosenthal of Stop Handgun Violence says Massachusetts should be the model for the rest of the country because it has comprehensive gun laws and a low gun death rate. We treat inherently dangerous firearms like inherently dangerous automobiles. We require renewable licensing, registration of firearms, safety training, safe storage. And just like with vehicles, you can't own a tank. You shouldn't be able to own a military-style assault weapon. Rosenthal says the gun industry should be regulated in the same way other industries are. Massachusetts state revenue is forecast to increase between two-tenths of a percent to 1.3 percent in the fiscal year that begins in July. That's compared to the current fiscal year. That was the message today from the Massachusetts Department of Revenue. It released its projection to state budget writers who will soon begin crafting a spending plan. The department expects a collection of 39.8 to $41 billion dollars. The projection warns that revenue is unlikely to grow as fast as it did in the last four years because of an economic slowdown that's possible. And snowplow operators sometimes see unusual sights as they clear out the roads, but they don't usually see a seal making its way ahead of the plow. Cape Elizabeth, Maine, police detective Ben Davis says that's just what one operator saw early yesterday. The seal was on Shore Road about a half mile from the ocean. He says police were able to get it in a tote bag and bring it back to the beach, but the seal was persistent. When I came into work, we immediately got a call that it was seen again on Shore Road, actually under a vehicle that had been driving on Shore Road. And by the time I got there, it uh, was going across a lawn. Davis says he brought the seal back to the beach, but an hour later it was back on Shore Road. The seal was eventually brought to a rehab center. A cold wind tonight down in the mid-20s overnight. Tomorrow, more clouds, another snowfall in the late afternoon and evening. Not too much accumulation, though. Changing over to rain by dawn on Thursday, with rain sticking to it during the day. Highs creeping to 51 degrees Thursday. Still holding steady at 37 degrees in Boston. The time is 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Half Moon Bay, California, added to the long and growing list of places in the U.S. to suffer a mass shooting. Yesterday in the scenic coastal town, seven people were killed and one wounded in the attack at two farming nurseries. A 66-year-old man is in custody. Marisa Lagos, correspondent with member station KQED, is in Half Moon Bay and joins me. And Marisa, I have seen these shootings described as a workplace dispute? What do we know? Yeah, it sounds like the uh, suspect did work at one point at both farms. Um, It seems like the first one he targeted, this mushroom farm on the highway leading into Half Moon Bay, uh, was his current employer. We know eight people were shot in total, seven are dead, Uh, one underwent surgery, and uh, he did go to both locations uh, and carry out these shootings. Okay. Um, So we know he worked at both these farms. I mentioned he's 66. What else do we know? They have identified him. That's right. His name is Chuenli Zhao. He is 66. Um, he did surrender to police after driving himself to a police substation, a sheriff's substation. Um, after he surrendered peacefully, they did find a semi-automatic handgun in the car. Uh, police say he did legally purchase that weapon. Um, they also said there's no prior indication he'd do something like this, that there had been no threats to the, you know, that they knew about. Um, and it does sound like he's cooperating with investigators today. Huh. So no red flags in his background that we know of. Okay. Um, What do we know about the eight people who were shot? Not a lot so far. Um, Between the sheriff's office and talking to the vice mayor here in Half Moon Bay, uh, it does sound like all of them were farm workers, all adults. Um, They were both of Asian and Hispanic descent. Um, And the sheriff said one tough thing here is that a lot of them are migrants. um, And so finding, locating relatives next of kin is proving a bit challenging. Um, But it does sound like, you know, all these folks knew each other. There was actually housing on site at that mushroom farm. So some of them live there. And it is believed that there were some children, some teenagers and very young children, um, at least at the farm when the shooting took place. Half Moon Bay, I mentioned you are there. Um, It's this beautiful rural coastal community. Have you been able to talk to people? How are they reacting? Yeah, it's pretty devastating. As you said, this is about half an hour south of San Francisco, a lot of farmland, um, you know, well known for sort of surfing and and, uh, boating culture. Uh, People know each other here pretty well. Um, And they've also been devastated by the recent storms that have swept through California. A lot of the farm workers um, were actually, you know, victims of flooding and and were trying to get help through that. Longtime District Attorney Steve Wagstaff had this to say this morning at the news conference. Cases like this, we've never had one in this county of this many deaths at one scene or one uh, time. So it was a very hectic scene. And, you know, as I said, Wagstaff has been DA here for a very long time. He praised sheriff's deputies for their response. um, But I think it, it really does speak to just how hard this is hitting this coastal community. Marissa Lagos, thank you. My pleasure, Mary Louise. That's Marissa Lagos of member station KQED updating us on the scene there in Half Moon Bay, California, where again yesterday seven people were killed and one wounded in an attack at two farms. California has endured two mass shootings in three days. First, the 11 killed in Monterey Park over the weekend, and then those seven more yesterday in Half Moon Bay. This despite the fact that California has some of the toughest gun safety laws in the nation. NPR's Martin Costi reports on the practical challenges the state has enforcing those laws. One kind of challenge is legal. For instance, the gun used in Monterey Park. Here's L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna. 
The weapon that we recovered, I'm describing as a magazine-fed semi-automatic assault pistol. Not an assault rifle, but an assault pistol that had an extended large capacity magazine. That extended magazine, a way to fire more rounds without having to stop to reload, that's illegal in California. But in practice, police are not able to enforce the ban on possessing those magazines right now because of an ongoing lawsuit in federal court. Ari Freilich is with the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Large areas of California's gun safety law, which have been largely very effective in in reducing gun violence in the state overall, those have been subject to litigation over and over again. The lawsuit over the magazines is still alive because of the U.S. Supreme Court's Bruin decision last year. That decision reined in gun control laws in New York State, setting a new standard for the whole country. The California Rifle and Pistol Association, which sued over the magazines, wouldn't speak to NPR, but in an online web post, its president celebrated Bruin as the beginning of a, quote, long overdue Second Amendment reckoning in California, unquote, and he promised more legal challenges. Legal fights aside, there's also the basic problem of neighboring states. We have an open border, obviously. Steve Lindley works for the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, but he comes from law enforcement. He ran California's Bureau of Firearms for nine years, a bureau that sometimes sent agents over state lines. We would attend the big Reno gun show in Reno, Nevada, and we would see California residents you know, buy illegal firearms, let's say a, an assault weapon, put it in a car and drive, drive westbound. It's illegal to bring in prohibited firearms, but Lindley says agents wouldn't necessarily pull those people over as soon as they got into California. We wouldn't stop them in Nevada County because they weren't going to be prosecuted or would be prosecuted at a much lower level. We wouldn't stop them in Placer County because of the same thing. We oftentimes would wait for them to get into Sacramento County, and that's when they would be stopped to be prosecuted because we felt that they would actually prosecute the case there which reveals another challenge for California's gun laws. Local support varies a lot. In some more rural jurisdictions, prosecutors are just less likely to come down hard over a gun. There's also been criticism of local police implementation of the state's armed and prohibited persons system. That's a statewide list of more than 20,000 people who at some point bought guns but are no longer allowed to have them. The state can't eliminate the backlog by itself. The Bureau of Firearms is budgeted for only 75 agents, and it's not even fully staffed right now. California's Attorney General Rob Bonta says they rely on cooperation from local police. We've been proud to work with them in joint efforts to do armed prohibited person system sweeps in certain areas, and like for the Bay Area, for example, Los Angeles, and, and we'll keep at it. Bonta also acknowledges the practical realities of trying to enforce stricter gun laws when other states are more permissive. Other states, frankly, need to step up. The federal government needs to step up. People need to have the courage and the conviction to do what we know will save lives. The data and the evidence doesn't lie. The evidence that California Democrats like Bonta point to is the state's gun death rate, which has dropped by half since the 1990s and is lower than the rest of the country. They also point to a study showing the state's mass shooting homicide rate as below average, though it's still higher than a few states with looser gun laws. And even as the U.S. Supreme Court tightens the screws on state gun restrictions, California is pushing ahead with new legislation, including a law that takes effect this summer, which seeks to make it easier for Californians to sue the firearm industry. Martin Costi, NPR News.
American Alpine ski star Michaela Schifrin won a race today in Italy. And afterwards, on the victory stand, someone placed a gold crown on her head. Well, that is fitting because this one was special. It was Schifrin's 83rd career World Cup win. It broke a record held by fellow American Lindsey Vaughn and now means Schifrin has won more races than any woman in history. NPR's Tom Goldman reports. Wearing a blue helmet, blue race suit on red skis, Michaela Schifrin exploded out of the start gate for her second run of today's giant slalom race at Kronplatz in Italy. She was the last skier to go because she led after the first run. She said later she was a bit nervous because she hates waiting. But Schifrin also said when it was time to go, everything went quiet until the end. Schifrin won by a fairly large margin in the giant slalom, 45 hundredths of a second. Moments after the win, the young woman who once put a sticker on her helmet bearing the words of her late father, be nice, think first, have fun, was gracious in her comments. The first thing she could think of after placing herself in the record books was to applaud the workers who prepared the race course. And it's the best conditions we had in a race all season. And that's because they were here all night slipping the course off and making it so wonderful us to ski. So thank you for that. This crowning moment for Schifrin is as stark an example as any of the wild swings in sports stardom. A year ago, she was being she called a loser like in the darker corners of social media. Oh my God. Unbelievable. It's happened again. Amidst huge expectations and still grieving her dad's death in 2020, Schifrin imploded at the 2022 Winter Olympics. She didn't finish in three races and came away with no medals. But she earned respect for her thoughtful, honest, and at times humorous reaction to what happened. Today, Schifrin said, quote, It's exciting. I'm happy. I'm proud. She now needs to win four more races to break the all-time record, woman or man, held by Sweden's Ingemar Stenmark with 86. She's expected to blow by that soon enough, and there's the possibility that Schifrin, only 27 and someone who's been lucky to avoid major injury, could win 100 races before her career's over. Tom Goldman, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow finished the day up three-tenths of a percent, 104 points to close at 33,734. S&P gave up less than a tenth of a percent to finish the day at 4,017. The Nasdaq gave up a quarter of a percent to close at 11,334. A Somerville Biotech plans to cut 77 jobs. That's 95 percent of the workforce at Finch Therapeutics. Finch is giving up on its clinical trials for a pill to fight bacterial infections. The pill will be made from a gut bacteria obtained from human feces. Finch plans to sell off the remainder of its intellectual property and assets. Business news comes up in about 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's now 6.20.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with a powerful new work by Barbara Kruger, one of the leading artists of the time. Plan your visit at icaboston.org. Start your day with WBUR tomorrow morning. We're following the changing balance of power in Israel, the shakeup of the government in Ukraine. And we've got a story about how parents perceive time when the days feel long, but the years fly by. That's tomorrow morning. Listen on the radio, the WBUR app, and on your smart speaker. And thank you for listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. In the forecast, partly cloudy and dry tonight in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy, just above freezing. Could have some snow moving late tomorrow afternoon, then mixing with rain, becoming all rain eventually. Could have just a couple of inches accumulation by Thursday, then a lot of melting on Thursday as it gets up to about 51 degrees. 37 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Lyric Stage with Preludes, Dave Malloy's musical fantasia in the mind of pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff, now through February 5th. Tickets at lyricstage.com. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Pamela Anderson, the Playboy playmate and TV star who became one of the most famous sex symbols of all time, has written a book about herself. And it was her sons who gave her the idea. I think they're just sick of always fighting for their mom. And they don't even really know the gritty details of everything, of course. But they felt like, you know, that I've overcome some things, which is what made me very strong or gave me the sense of humor. And just a warning, Anderson has worked through a lot, including sexual trauma, which we'll be talking about in this segment. As Anderson wrote her memoir, she made it very clear from the beginning she would have full control. I don't want a ghostwriter. I don't want a collaborator. I just need a great editor. And that's what happened. I wrote every word. I started by asking Anderson about her childhood. She says she was a painfully shy kid who was molested by a female babysitter at a young age. From then on, I just felt kind of like a prisoner of my childhood. I just felt like I couldn't. I was really confused, and I knew it had something to do with my body. I would just was painfully shy, paralyzing. It was such an awful feeling. And so when I did get to L.A., when I did push myself to kind of make these kind of grave choices, it was life or death for me. It really felt like I was doing something to overcome and take my power back. Yeah. And I did it in a, yeah, with a vengeance. <laughs> you certainly did. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned in your book that really moved me is even though you had gone through sexual trauma very early on in life, over time, you were able to get to a place where you could really enjoy sex. You say that sex actually helped you conquer some of your shyness. Quote, 
I loved role-playing. I could disconnect, <laughs> be someone who wasn't me. Sex could be fun, fulfilling, and imaginative. Tell me, how did embracing your sexuality help you take back control, help you give yourself power? Well, I'm a romantic, and I was always a big reader and loved fairy tales. So it was this heightened reality of what romance could be, because it couldn't just be two normal people, you know, sitting on a couch reading together. For me, it had to be my knight in shining armor is coming in on a horse covered in, you know, like so, so Tommy and I just had this very wild kind of romantic time together. You and Tommy Lee. Yeah. yeah. It's how I imagined a real loving relationship should be, because my role models were my parents who were you know, it was alcoholism and abuse. So I just felt like I don't want that. Yeah. Because, you know, the abuse in my life, I think what people don't realize is it's accumulative. It's like, a, it's compounding. So it just became harder and harder. And more and more about my imagination and playing a character because I really wanted to disconnect from myself. Well, you have made very clear that you have learned to use your sex appeal to draw attention to very real, important causes that you care about, like animal welfare. Can you talk about that piece? How, like, instead of letting your public image in any way limit you, you've used it to influence and persuade people to care about the things that you deeply care about. Well, I started to think that anything that got me in the door was a good thing. So a lot of times I would meet with world leaders because they wanted to meet me, you know, have a kiss on the cheek or, or an autograph, and I wanted laws to be changed. And we both got what we wanted. So they were always very impressed that I knew about what I was fighting for. They, mm -hmm. they didn't expect me to come in alone and to have these thoughts. And so I was able to be very successful. You understood that people like to be around you, want to be around you. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny. And there has been strange things. When I would write a letter to somebody to meet them, they would call and say, you know, I was the prime minister of Australia, for instance, would say, can I bring my buddies along? How did that feel when they would ask that? Well, I was getting kind of used to that kind of behavior, but publicly people were starting to kind of catch on how awful that was. And, and I would just, again, I didn't crumble. I mean, you just have to keep going. Disrespect is a weapon of the weak. And I was able to change laws for animals. And that was really important to me to kind of have some meaning along this kind of yeah. silly, superficial career. I felt like I wasn't able to really dig my teeth into anything of substance when it came to my career. So I thought, well, this is how I can create some meaning. Exactly. You talk about actually being underestimated was like a secret weapon. Like one of the poems yes. in your book reads, when you have nothing to live up to, you can't disappoint. People whispered, I might be genius if I could form a full sentence. Utter shock. You know, I love that because I love it when people underestimate me. It means right. I'm just going to show them that they're wrong. Is right. that how you felt sometimes? <laughs> yeah, I did. And I'd always kind of laugh when people go, oh my gosh, you wrote a poem. Or, or she said this. And it was just like, if it was anybody else, maybe it would be kind of sidelined. But because it was me, it was so shocking. <laughs> she can but put was... sentences together in a paragraph. Yes, in a Make paragraph. Make a statement. Yeah. Write a book. <laughs> right. right. So you know, something I'm curious about when you're writing a book about yourself is what to reveal and not reveal. Like so many times people who go through trauma are told, shine a light on it, name it, open up about it. But, but you point mm -hmm. out near the end of your book that some parts are best left unsaid. Tell me about that decision. Well, I mean, my, my book started out of just, as just a poem. It was like a 60-page poem, <laughs> and I had to learn how to shape it and put it into a book. But I also felt like there were some things that just didn't need to be in there because I really wanted to balance it with the whole life story. It's not just the things that happened to me aren't me. 
You know, I wanted to make sure that my feelings about these situations, it was more about that, not about just like the men in my life or people that had come and gone. But, but I'll tell you, the hardest part of the book for me to write was about the abuse as a child to actually name things like the games she used to make me play on her. And I felt like I really don't want to say this. And so I probably should say it because I mm -hmm. think there's so many people out there, you know, Predators know how to pick vulnerable people and they do things to you that are so embarrassing and shameful that you would never tell anybody. And I think that's something that we need to get past. And I think that hopefully will help young people or anybody tell somebody. It's hard to, but I, I, I wanted to say that. And I, you know, I took it out, erased it, I put it back in, I took it out, I put it back in. I thought, I'm going to put it back in. I, it needs to be in there. And I, I think it'll speak to somebody. Did naming it out loud, putting it in there, did it change the way you think about the past now? Well, I've obviously my survival mechanism was my imagination and also learning how to compartmentalize. And, and I'm dealing with that a lot right now with my mom. You know, she read the book and we were been talking and it kind of comes out in jibs and jabs and, you know, this feisty kind of comments. My mom's very sarcastic and funny, but it's like very cutting and cold. And I can tell she's just processing. So I'm just kind of, I'm listening to her. Mm -hmm. But I think in the end, it's helpful. And, and I want to stop this because in my family, this is a lineage. This is generations of the same story. And I don't want that for my kids or anybody in my family. The story being sexual trauma? Yeah, someone has to be brave enough to stop it. We don't have to tiptoe around alcoholics. We don't have to be in abusive relationships. We can leave. And I said to my mom, which was very difficult, is I guess the difference between her and I is that I left and she stayed. That I chose my kids and she chose my dad. You know, like we've been going at it a little bit like this, but I think it's good. Let's get this out. I think that's why at any sign of abuse for me, at any sign of violence, I left. And, you know, people kind of like to make fun that I've been married multiple times, but and I, I make fun of myself too, because those are my regrets. I wish I didn't, but I just wanted to recreate a family for my boys. But I just, you know, was not fishing in the right pond, maybe. You're still searching. I'm still searching. You're still seeking. Pamela Anderson, her new book is called Love, Pamela. It's out on January 31st, and the documentary about her life, Pamela, A Love Story, is out on Netflix the same day. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning.